Utah skiers and riders, and welcome back to Last Chair, the Ski Utah podcast. I'm your host, Tom Kelly. I love that tune from Utah's own Pixie and the Partygrass Boys. And a big thanks to our sponsor, High West, Utah's first legal distillery since 1870. High West is passionate about crafting delicious and distinctive whiskeys and helping people appreciate whiskey all in the context of our home in the American West. When you're in town, visit one of High West's locations in Park City and nearby Wanship. And a shout out to our episode sponsors, Level 9 Sports, with four locations along the Wasatch Front, including its fabulous newly renovated shop in downtown Salt Lake City. And Powder Mountain, just an hour north of the Salt Lake City Airport, Mau is one of Utah's best-kept secrets. Over the past couple decades, Utah has become the epicenter of the ski industry in America. In addition to some of the world's greatest resorts, the proximity to the mountains and to an international airport has attracted some of the sport's biggest brands, which now call Utah home. Utah is also now the home of Snow Sports Industries America, the trade association representing equipment manufacturers and retailers. Joining us today on Last Chair is SIA President and CEO Nick Sargent. A former ski racer and a World Cup ski technician, Sargent made his mark as a brand builder at Solomon and later Burton. Today, he's transforming the industry association from being a trade show company to an industry leader focused on education, data, and leading the industry in areas of climate, sustainability, along with diversity, equity, and inclusion. Nick will talk us through the dramatic evolution of the sport in the last few decades, including the impact snowboarding has had on skiing. And he'll dive into climate and talk about innovative affinity programs that are helping make the sport more diverse. Now let's join Nick Sargent in the Utah offices of Snow Sports Industries America. Today we are in Park City, Utah, the home of Snow Sports Industries America. Nick Sargent, uh, President and CEO, thanks a lot for joining us on Last Chair. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. You know, we're recording this in early October, and just looking out the window, Nick, you have this amazing view of almost the entire ridgeline at Park City Mountain. Beautiful fall colors. This is a great time of year, isn't it? It certainly is. The colors are popping. It's nice to have some uh, inclement weather that break up the bluebird days, and, uh, and it's nice to see some rain. It's been a while. You know, it's kind of interesting. We're sitting here. Yeah, it's nice to have some inclement weather once in a while and a little bit of rain. We've actually had a lot of rain. The colors, I was wondering if they were going to ever come out, but it really is spectacular. You grew up in Vermont. Uh, uh, how do you rate our color here in Utah compared to Vermont in the fall? Well, I got to be honest. You know, Vermont foliage is hard to beat, but uh, Utah certainly has some amazing color and uh, certainly you know, the, the scrub brush and the aspens and, um, you know, the blue sky, it's, uh, it's, 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 it's amazing to see. And in comparison to Vermont, you know, I would say it's right up there. Cool. Yeah. It is a really a beautiful time of year. And the best part is we're now counting down the days to the season and it won't be long, just a little bit over a month now. And we'll be thinking about getting up on the lifts there. Uh, appreciate you joining us here on last chair. We're going to cover a lot of territory here today. We're going to talk about SIA, uh, what it does as an organization, the move to Utah to uh, bring this national organization right here to the state. We're also going to talk about climate. We're going to talk about uh, in inclusion and a number of other topics, but just to kind of get things rolling, uh, give us a little bit of your background as a skier. I know you grew up in Stowe, Vermont, and how did you get into the sport and what was life like there growing up uh, near such an amazing resort? 
Yeah, Stowe was great. And um, truth is, I'm actually just uh, 10 miles north in, in Morrisville, Vermont, and a uh, little less known than Stowe on the global footprint. But uh, uh, I had an uh, aunt and uncle who got me in uh, to Nordic skiing at a young age, and um, I really took to it. And uh, uh, we lived on a golf course, so in the winter we had a lot of a lot of open space to go Nordic ski. And in fact, my dad used to drive me to school every day, and my other my other brothers would make us ski to school. And so I'd Nordic ski to school and leave my skis against the building and spend a day walking around, going to gym class in my Nordic boots and slipping and sliding. And then I would ski home. And um, you know, growing up in Vermont is uh, it's an experience. Uh, the weather can be really difficult, but if you um, get into it, the weather's beautiful and uh, the snow's great. And um, like everyone who grew up in a in an alpine environment or a snowy environment, just it was the way the world was. You didn't know any different, and um, you couldn't wait to get outside and play with your friends and digging tunnels and snowballs and sledding and it really was a, you know, exceptional place. And, and, you know, you weren't bothered by modern day marvels of, you know, social media and, and phones. And, you know, we had a TV with two channels, CBS and, and uh, VPR, and that was it. So we weren't really inside and my mom encouraged us to stay outside as much as possible. And uh, we were just having the time of our lives playing in the, playing in the snow and the woods and the, the fields, the farm fields. And, uh, you know, it was a real Tom Sawyer type of upbringing. How old were you when you first discovered that you could take a lift to the top of the mountain? You know, we had a we had a what was called the Sunday program. Um, every every Sunday in the winter, uh, they would load up the kids on the buses and they would ship you off to the mountain. And um, the first time I went, I couldn't believe the amount of freedom that uh, that you had on skis on mountain. And uh, my first runs were at Toll House. And if you're familiar with Spruce Peak and Mount Mansfield, that's the little beginner hill, um, just a, a mile two before you get to Mount Mansfield. And, um, you know, my friends were there and uh, the hot chocolate was good. And uh, it was just an amazing experience. And to feel that T-bar pull you up with such force was really cool. And then we progressed to Spruce Peak and the chairlifts. And, uh, it was just a really fun environment. And, uh, again, I've mentioned my friends, but that's what we did. And, um, we all went skiing together and, and, uh, discovered that it was, uh, it was more of a, than a sport. It was a lifestyle. And then we wanted in. Snowboarding was evolving in your part of the country, actually, during that time. Did you get a hankering as a kid to, uh, ride a board? Yeah, I did. And, uh, you know, I first started skiing in the early 70s. And um, I think the first time I saw a snowboard was sometime around 78 or 79. And um, I thought, you know, I need to have one of those. It was going to sit well on the porch next to my sled and my Nordic skis and my Alpine skis. And it was another apparatus that we could go have fun on. And uh, I convinced my dad to buy me one for a birthday present. And it was a Burton Backhill. And, um, he walked me down to Shaw's general store on main street and Stowe and bought me a back hill. And, um, we spent hours on that thing, including hiking Spruce peak in between, uh, uh, gate training and ski racing during our lunch break and, uh, just learning how to maneuver and ride. And, uh, it was really fun and exhilarating. 
Did your ski racing coach know that you were out there on a board? They, they found out quickly because under the chairlift, there are these straight lines and everybody was wondering who was doing that. And uh, a good friend of mine, um, uh, happens, happens to, uh, name was Woody, uh, he and I would hike up and make these straight lines. And, and, um, and then the mountain company found out and then uh, they didn't like that. So they uh, asked us politely to uh, not come back with our snowboards. And uh, that changed a few years later. Interesting. You know, it's fun to look back at those stories. You know, we probably all did some stuff that maybe wasn't quite acceptable at the time, but you know, we're, we're kids and we're just pushing the envelope a bit, having fun. That's what it was all about was just having fun. And, you know, winter is long and, um, and uh, the more fun you could have, you know, uh, winter was more enjoyable. And um, you almost were disappointed when spring came around because you wanted to keep, keep riding and skiing and sledding and having fun with your buddies in the snow. Where did your ski racing career take you? Well, it took me to college, so that was a, a win. Uh, thank my thank my parents for introducing me to ski racing, and um, I went to Western State College in Gunnison, Colorado, and got a ski scholarship to ski race. And um, they were an NCAA school at the time, and uh, so it was fun to to ski at NCAA and um, GS and slalom. And but clearly, it wasn't good enough to make a, a U.S. ski team or any of that. But um, you know, I would say skiing has taken me all over the world in, in different capacities. And then uh, my background in snowboarding has taken me a lot of places around the world that I might not have ever uh, had the chance to go see. So you grew up in Vermont. You ended up going to school at Western State uh, in uh, Gunnison, Colorado, near, near Crested Butte. How'd you find your way? I know you've made several sojourns out here to Park City. Uh, uh, now you're based here, but how did you find your way to Park City back in the 90s? Yeah, I had a, uh, I had a friend, um, and uh, he was a ski coach for a little while of mine, Will Goldsmith, and uh, he was living in Crested Butte. He invited me to come work at a new ski shop that he and a, another, another colleague were starting, Brian Burnett, called the Renstall. And this was I, sometime in the fall of 92 or 3, I can't remember the exact date um, or year. So I said, sure, I'll come, come work for you and um, came, to, came to Park City and couldn't believe the lights and the people and the buildings and there was activity happening in action and I thought it was the right place for me at that time. And, you know, funny, funny story. I came out for a part-time job in my first, first day, I think I worked 16 hours. And then, um, I think an average day at Renstall was uh, somewhere between 14 to 18 hours a day. And, um, I was the only employee. So there are three of us tuning hundreds and hundreds of skis every week. Well, Renstall is really a, uh, Park City tradition now, an institution that's been around for, for quite a while, but the guys who started it, Will and, and Brian, they came off of the world cup tour. They'd been tuning world cup skis for some years and you kind of eventually found your way into that as well. I did. Yeah. And that was, that was really the, uh, the golden ticket was, uh, you know, come, come work for Will and Brian at Renstall, learn how to tune skis at a world-class level, get exposure to a lot of different athletes um, from around the world and then certainly here in Park City. And, uh, and then you also, you know, you'll get a lot of exposure to the ski companies. And uh, so anyway, I had pinpointed uh, Dina Star Lang as uh, the company I wanted to work for. And um, I had met their uh, director of racing and um, he was a really, really great guy and has, has been a lifelong friend. But um, I called him for a year 
every Friday, two, two o'clock. And um, I think he thought I was just a real pain in the ass. So he ended up hiring me. And uh, sometimes uh, that's the best way to get a job. Persistence pays off. And uh, anyway, uh, so I got the job and, and, um, and that's how I started my career, you know, tuning skis professionally and doing World Cup service. And, uh, and again, you know, having skiing take me all over the world. Awesome. Did you, uh, uh, how long did you do that? How long were you on that tour? Because I think a lot of people look at this as a real glory thing. But after you do that for a few years, man, it's a job. It's a job. Um, you know, I did it for five years and, um, it was, uh, you know, it was more of a, more than a job. It was a commitment. And, um, you know, as I said, I've been all over the world and I've been to the nicest hotels and never left their basement. And, uh, so I, um, uh, you know, the, uh, an average, an average work day would start at, you know, five thirty six, and it would end sometime around midnight or one in the morning. And you would have anywhere from, you know, on a light day, 10 pair of ski and, and on, on a busy day, maybe 30, if you're ski testing and glide testing downhill skis. And, and, uh, you know, it wasn't a job for the week, uh, of mind or heart. And, um, it, you had to fully commit to it. And, uh, and I did, but, you know, again, after five years, uh, I had uh, more aspirations and, and other goals I wanted to achieve. Who were some of the athletes you worked with in that time? Well, you know, the, the superstars were Tommy Moe and Chad Fleischer and uh, Willie Wiltz, uh, another um, inspiration or, or in the ski tuning community, was responsible for those guys. And I had a fair amount of, of exposure and a uh, fair amount of work given, given to me for them. But I was primarily on the women's uh, speed side. And uh, so the names at the time, um, Megan Garrity, Kirsten Clark, John Amendez, um, Shannon Nobis, but they're also... I work specifically for Dina Star, but Dina Star was owned by Rosignol. So you would always get new assignments, whether it was, um, you know, some of the men from the French downhill team or Italians, you know, Deborah Campagnoni was someone I, I did some work with um, um, quite a bit, as well as, you know, I did boots for Tamba and um, Dina Star owned Lang Boots. And so if you were to be a World Cup service technician, you had to be proficient with boots. So I was not his primary boot technician, but you know, I could change a buckle, I could grind out a hot spot. And um, Dean Star Lang owned look binding. So I was also the World Cup look binding technician. And uh, so I got a lot of exposure doing the bindings for uh, for athletes like Tomba and, and a, a handful of others. And anyway, you know, you had a lot of exposure. Um, they call it the White Circus for a reason. And um, it's a it's a traveling roadshow. And like anything, you know, you end up doing a lot of work for those athletes that ski on your on your products. But you also end up doing a lot of work for some of your colleagues that work for Solomon or Rosinol or Vocal or Atomic, helping them out if they're, you know, sick or injured or whatnot. So you found your way back to Utah. You worked for Solomon and uh, there's a lot of stories we could probably tell, but I want to go to the 2002 Olympics. And I think at that time, just thinking back myself, a lot of us probably didn't know you at the time, but we just knew that there was this super hot hospitality program at the Miners Hospital here in Park City, which uh, you were the one who pulled that off. I was, yeah. I um, So I, I left Dina Star and got a job with Solomon and uh, Solomon was owned by Adidas. I started out in their marketing department and then that transitioned into, I guess it was uh, you know, manager of the Olympic experience or something was the title. 
And I happened to know a lot of people that I had met in my days doing World Cup service. And I also um, had a lot of friends here in Park City that I had met along my, my journeys and, and time here in Park City. And one of those was uh, Brad Olch, and he was the mayor. And um, I ran into him um, at a ski show in Las Vegas, which was owned by SIA, fortuitous for here we are today. And um, I told him what I was up to, and he said, hey, I got a hot property that the... Um, the Utah Olympic Committee and the IOC just gave back to us called Miners Hospital. And I said, I'm looking for a location. I'm going to fly directly to Park City from here and I'll meet you in a day or two. And long story short, we got it. Uh, we nailed down the deal. And, um, and so I created the hospitality zone for Adidas and Solomon. And we had a restaurant, a media a floor. We had a hospitality floor. We had a private meeting space. And we were hosting athletes. We were also hosting retailers. Every every forty eight hours, we had, we would we would flip some retailers and uh, bring new retailers in, and really give them the Olympic experience. And so I was in charge of that Myers Hospital, and you know I, I probably did too too good of a job because uh, the International Olympic Committee stopped by and informed informed me that I was. Um, pushing all the, all the, uh, the buttons on guerrilla marketing before guerrilla marketing was a thing. And, um, you know, I thought I was being cute and smart and I said, well, why don't you send me a letter and I'll get back to you in two weeks. And, um, so that came back with, uh, the global CEO of Adidas calling me directly saying, take that down. And, uh, cause we are the sponsor of the, uh, the, the next summer games in Athens and they're going to cause a lot of heartache for us. It's a fun story. And those of us who were here in Utah for the Olympics in 2002, Park City really was the happening place. I mean, it was okay in Salt Lake, but the things that were done up here on historic Main Street, but but out of all of it, that that party at the Miners Hospital, it really stood out. Now, I think for a lot of us, it was the first time that we really got to know the Adidas brand in, in winter, and it was a huge promotion for Solomon. So uh, it, it, it was great after the fact to kind of learn this story as to how that great party came about. It was, it, it was a wild time. I mean, it was, um, I would say, you know, uh, back in the Olympics, I've, I've done five or six winter Olympics. That one stacks up as one of the best because, you know, just, just to your point, you know, Salt Lake and Park City, you know, this is an amazing um, space to have an Olympic Games. And uh, the town was on fire. The people were so excited. It was great to, to host the world here. And we were fortunate to have a backdrop with Miners Hospital, which couldn't be any more iconic to Park City. Um, we had miners carts with uh, with fire, you know, fire pits, and we froze uh, product and ice ice blocks and you know flags and lasers and a huge outdoor viewing screen. And I poached the live feed from uh, the, uh, the International Olympic Committee. Um, so we had, we had a, you know, a, a viewing station, which probably shouldn't have ever happened. Um, it probably won't ever happen again, but, uh, statute of limitations is that's passed. Right. So, uh, but anyway, it was a great, it was a great time. And, and again, I had such great friends here in Park City. You know, I got to blend my friends with uh, my professional world and needless to say, when the games were over, I was ready to go home. 
Well, let's, uh, we're going to talk more about SIA in just a minute, but I want to hit one more stop in your career. I think where a lot of us in the industry really got to know you is in the role that you had with Burton Snowboards for, for many, many years. I mean, you grew up as a skier. And I've always wondered this, you know, you grew up as a skier. You were a skier. You were a ski racer. How'd you end up at a snowboard company? Yeah, that, that is one of these, uh, those questions that I continue to ask myself um, beyond my life at Burton. But uh, I had a really good uh, uh, colleague that I worked with at Adidas and Solomon, and um, he took the job as chief uh, marketing officer. And after the Olympic Games, um, I had created a name for myself selling um, sponsorship and partnerships. And um, so uh, this buddy of mine went to Burton. He called me up and said, there's a great opportunity here for you to take licensing and partnerships and, and, um, and really make something, something cool happen. And, um, it's an open canvas, you know, we'll give you the globe as your footprint and, um, well, you know, we won't get in the middle of your business. So I'm from Vermont. So I said, what a great way to uh, leave Portland, Oregon and get back to Vermont. I was starting a young family at the time and, uh, wanted to get closer to my, to my family in Vermont. And, uh, so it was a great opportunity, but, um, yeah, I was uh, stuck at a snowboard company as a skier for that first six months, and it really was a, a difficult transition. And um, my wife was like, "Hey, hey, you know, suck it up and make the most of it. You, you know, you moved us back to Vermont, and that was a that was a little pep talk I needed to um, to really get into it, but." Um, it was great. You know, this was the day right when Facebook was just starting. Digital content was a thing. Uh, Red Bull, the energy drink, was just starting to, to to come on the rise. The games coming out of 2002 had really propelled snowboarding. There was a huge demand for action sport and snowboarding. And so I was, I was monetizing the hype and the brand and the culture to major, you know, um, fortune 50 companies that were paying, you know, millions and millions of dollars annually to be a part of this. And, uh, we created a, uh, a Burton global open series, uh, as a way to develop, um, world-class athletes. And, um, Sean White was part of that and Danny Davis and Terry Hawkinson. And, you know, the list goes on and on, um, Kelly Clark, Hannah Teeter and, um, so we had events in in Switzerland, in um, in Australia, in uh, New Zealand, in Tokyo, in China, um, and it, they all culminated around the Burton U.S. Open, which was in Stratton, and then I ultimately moved it to Vail uh, on a request from Jake. And then from Burton, how did you make the leap to SIA? That was another strange one too. I was uh, walking into ISPO in Munich. And I happened to bump into a friend of mine from a competing um, snowboard company. And he was the chair of SIA, a guy named Bob Gundrum from uh, Coal Capita Union. And um, he said, you know what? You'd be perfect for the, the job as president of SIA. You know, would you, would you consider applying? And, you know, I thought about it and I said, no, I th I'm pretty happy at Burton. But, you know, timing is everything. And um, I saw that the runway at Burton was... Uh, you know, we were running out of, uh, uh, real estate and, um, the business had changed. The sport had changed. Um, certain media had changed and, um, you know, it was going to be a, it was going to be a tough lift at burden. And so the timing was right. And so I put my hat in the, uh, in the ring and it went through the interview process, which was long and drawn out. And, um, and I, I ultimately got the job. 
And at that point, SIA was not here in Park City. It was out in the D.C. area. It was in McLean, Virginia, just outside D.C. And uh, um, my my deal with um, with the chair and the board at the time was, you know, I will commute from Vermont to uh, Washington. I'm not going to move there permanently. Um, I had kids and they were into ski racing and Vermont was a good home for us. And, um, and they said, that's, that's fine because we want you to move the uh, organization to Utah. And, uh, we think park city would be the best location. Um, all roads come through Utah in the winter sport business. And, um, there's a number of companies, um, and member companies that belong, uh, to SIA. And, uh, it would be great for us to be closer to our business closer to the sport and put us in a place where we're going to be front and center. Let's talk a little bit about Utah and it becoming a bit of a hub for the ski industry. If you go back 20 and 30 years, it really wasn't that, but what really precipitated the move and the evolution and the startup of so many companies here in Utah over the last 20 years? Yeah, it has been, you know, I would say since uh, 20, I'm sorry, 2002, um, I know that Utah had a, um, uh, had a mandate to attract winter sport brands to the state. Um, and, um, you know, hence why Rosinal is here and why Amher, Solomon Atomic are in Ogden and Descent and Black Diamond. They've been here for a long time. Um, Scott uh, Bikes and, and so on. And the list goes on and on. It is one of the best environments for a company, um, specifically if you are an outdoor or a winter sport brand. It has... All that you need from a snow perspective, from an outdoor perspective, from a uh, you know biking, hiking, um, hunting perspective, you know whatever your sport is, um, Utah has it. But I would say you know one of the appealing factors for myself and moving SIA here was the proximity to the airport, um, the proximity to Salt Lake City, the um, proximity to the Cottonwoods, um, Snow Basin, Powder Mountain. Um, there's just so much activity in such a very close proximity. Uh, you're not driving all over creation to uh, to get to where you want to participate in your sport. And um, and, and certainly with the new airport and um, you know I I eighty is uh, is easy going up and down. There's very little traffic. It just sings out, uh, you know, this is a great place to do business. It's a great place to work. It's a great place to live. And, you know, like we were saying earlier in this, um, in this session, you know, right from the front of my office, I'm, I look right at Park City Mountain Resort. I have my gear right here in the office. I can uh, go out at lunchtime or go sneak out midday and make some runs and come back. Um, I don't know a lot of other locations where you can do that. Certainly you can, um, but not at the level where Park City and Salt Lake have to offer. I think sometimes we forget about the cultural aspects of what goes into a community and 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 how a business uh, can can thrive there. Uh, but you are, as you know, as we look out the window right now, we can see the fall colors on the ridgeline at Park City Mountain. But you can be at Alta and Snowbird or Snow Basin in an hour. You can be up in Big Cottonwood in less than an hour. That cultural aspect has really helped you in the, in the few years now you've been here with SIA. It gains a lot of credibility. And like I said, all roads in the winter business come through Utah, specifically Park City during the year. And you know whether you are a um, accessory brand, a hard good brand, you know, skis, snowboard, um, an apparel brand, you are going to come to Park City with your business. And 
you know, it lends itself to the business. It and uh, and specifically to SIA, it gives us the credibility that we need to be a viable um, component to the winter sport business. And, you know, unfortunately we have the passes, um, that work at all the resorts. So when our members come, they can post up here, do some work, go on the hill, make some runs, come back, host their own meetings here. So this is really is a multi-purpose facility. You work in an outdoor sport. And I think anybody who works in that field, whether you happen to work in hunting or fishing or skiing, snowboarding, whatever it is, that lifestyle is really the draw. And there are so many different components to lifestyle. And you have all those right here in Utah. You do. And, um, you know, that really is the defining essence of the winter sport business is this lifestyle. And, um, you know, if you're working in this business, you, you live it, you breathe it, you eat it, um, you spawn it. Um, and yeah, you know, your kids grow up in this environment and, um, but you know, if, you know, I have a lot of other friends that work in private equity and technology or, you know, whatever their, their spaces and they're enjoying the lifestyle that, that, that we've created, that we've endorsed and we promote. By the nature of what you do at SIA, you are a trade organization, so your brand may not be familiar to skiers and riders. Tell us a little bit about what SIA does and why it's important for those of us who ski and ride. So um, SIA is a 70-year-old trade association, um, originally designed to host an annual uh, winter sport show, or, you know, as it was called, the ski show. And... um, And, you know, the intention of SIA was to create an environment where commerce can happen, where the retailers can see next year's product from the manufacturers. They can, uh, they can write their orders and, um, and then, you know, the retailer would receive their product, you know, six, seven months later, we sold the snow show, which was the name of the, uh, the trade show to, uh, Emerald Exposition. And those of you that, um, are remember outdoor retailer here in Utah, um, they're the owner of outdoor retailer and, um, and we're happy to have them back here in Utah. Um, this, this January, it's the largest winter sport, uh, trade show and summer trade show as well. And, uh, but, um, since selling that trade show, we've really transitioned to a true trade association. And we have three primary, uh, stools, uh, legs to our stool. And uh, we focus on climate and um, as, you know, the biggest threat to winter sport um, and the winter sport business. We also focus on um, diversity, inclusion, and equity. And uh, as one of the greatest opportunities for our sport as well. And then we focus on participation and, you know, getting new, new skiers and snowboarders and mountain bike and fat tire riders and, Nordic sledding, trail running, um, uphill, downhill, whatever you want to do in the snow. Uh, we're focused on getting people excited about winter. And then, you know, the last one is, uh, advocacy and that's working in Washington to help push tariffs and reduce those tariffs for our our manufacturers as well. So we're, we're really the silent organization that keeps the, uh, the winter outdoor business afloat. I want to start and talk a little bit about your efforts in climate. I mean, this is something that's important to all of us as skiers and riders. And I think uh, the the younger generations coming through are particularly concerned about this. You've really embarked on some action steps with SIA over the last few years now. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I said this just a second ago, but um, climate change is the, is the largest threat to the winter sport business. And um, in a state like Utah, 
where uh, the state tax from winter sport is somewhere uh, 800 $5, million. Um, just behind Colorado at 1.2 billion. Uh, you know, it drives an engine um, for this state and the community. And it's not just the retailers. It is, you know, the restaurants, the bars, the uh, um, all the people driving, driving people around. Um, I mean, it's an industry. And so, uh, you know, I started a um, an, an initiative here called um, Climate United. And it's a way that we can gather our uh, members, uh, the suppliers and the manufacturers and the retailers and the and the resorts, to start to pay attention to climate. And we've lost 35 days of winter in the last uh, 30 years. And if you look at winter in its totality, it's it's right around 160 days. So when you think about what we've lost in the last 30 years, you know that is almost a sixth uh, of our business. And I can't imagine what's going to happen in the next 30 years if we lost another 35 days um, and we, you know, virtually lose, you know, a, a strong third to almost a half of the business of, of winter. And so, you know, we, um, I have a group um, that work here and they're focused on climate. Um, they're working with different groups in Washington. They're working with different groups around the country in addressing climate and getting and raising awareness uh, of the effects of climate. And, um, you know, fortunately, um, um, we were working real hard with the Biden administration and the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, which, which was just passed. And um, so I'm really proud of the work that, that uh, the team has done here to, uh, to help push that across the line. And so we were, you know, invited to the White House a couple weeks ago to celebrate that with, uh, with the president, and the vice president, and, um, and um, a select group of, um, of senators and Congress folks. And, um, you know, and those are, those are those, you know, high five moments, but um, we have a lot of work ahead of us and we're going to continue to push and, and drive this initiative and, uh, and really set, it, set, it, set ourselves up to be good stewards uh, for the next generation. Climate and sustainability are two different things, but they're both uh, focused on similar interests for the future. But talk a little bit about your initiatives in sustainability. Yeah, sustainability is, uh, you know, a lot of people will say climate and sustainability are the same thing um, for the less, the less informed. But sustainability really is, you know, how we, how we work and um, clean manufacturing and, um, and, and, and really doing the right things for your company and your business that set yourselves apart. And, you know, whether you're reducing your carbon emissions, your greenhouse gas output, whether you are uh, putting solar panels, whether you are having, you know, gardens, uh, you know, employee run gardens in your, in your, um, on your property, whether you are um, mandating that your, your product is, is uh, manufactured in a, in a clean, uh, a clean way with, and reducing your waste. Those are elements that really come into play, and um, we have a long way to go. We have a lot of leaders out there. Uh, Burton Snowboards is doing a great job. Rosinal is doing a great job. Patagonia, the news with uh, you know giving their giving their company to to climate. I mean that's the ultimate. And uh, but we have to continue to keep our foot on the on the gas, and we have to continue to to be diligent, um, and then really look at how we are operating not only independently and individually, but as a company, as socially, and and where we fit in the environment, and uh, um, it takes it takes work of everyone to make this to make this come together. 
We'll be back with Nick on Last Chair in just a moment. Since we're talking about gear today, let's take a quick visit to longtime Last Chair sponsor, Level 9 Sports. If you're looking for new gear, it really pays to visit a shop and talk to the experts when making choices, whether it's a new pair of skis or an upgrade to your goggles. You have a lot of choices in shops right here in Utah. What I've really grown to love about Level 9 is its approach to families. Outfitting your crew with skis, boots, jackets, snowboards, that can be daunting. Level 9 recognizes that and it's implemented programs to not only make the process easier, but also helping with the impact on your wallet. Last season, I had a chance to visit the newly renovated Level 9 sports shop in downtown Salt Lake City. It's less than a minute off the freeway from the new Salt Lake City International Airport. It's an amazing old historic building in an industrial area going through an amazing renaissance. If you're flying into Utah and you need to rent skis, it's a perfect choice with easy off and on access to I-15. It's a huge shop featuring a wide selection of skis, boards, and accessories. And a big feature that stood out to me was literally an entire mezzanine floor dedicated to boots and boot fitting. I had a fitting myself last season at the Level 9 store in Mill Creek, and I highly recommend it. Visit the website at level9sports.com. That's level9sports, spelled out, dot com. And check out the Ski Learn Center and how-to videos that will help walk you through the entire process. You can find Level 9 Sports at four locations, including Orem, Mill Creek, the new store in downtown Salt Lake City, and in Ogden. Stop by and tell them you heard it on Last Chair. Now let's head back to the SIA office to continue our conversation with Nick Sargent. Let's go back to what you just mentioned about Patagonia. And recently, if folks have not heard this news, uh, Yvonne Chouinard, uh, the originator of Patagonia, made a really remarkable decision uh, that hopefully will provide some support in this area for future generations. It, you know, it really sets a trend and it really uh, was a courageous move. And again, I read it like everybody else. I had no inside, inside <laughs> awareness of that deal. But, um, you know, when you think about it, from the outside, um, you know, this is someone who's really putting putting all of their resources um, where their mouth is, and um, you know, it's it's great for our industry. It's great for that brand. Probably could be one of, considered one of the best marketing campaigns I've ever seen in our, in our modern world. Um, but getting back to the point of you know this this is an example of taking corporate. Um, profitability and put it putting it where it belongs. Um, we don't need more wealthy people. We need more money to support our lifestyle and to protect it. And we need more companies to be thinking about how they want to position themselves. Um, either if they move their their company into the public space or they want to. Um, unload their company. Uh, they're they're tired and they want to retire, or how do they set their company up for the next generation? And so this is a great example of one person doing an amazing feat for a great cause in a great industry. Yeah, it's just a great story. Let's let's hop over to diversity, equity, inclusion. I think it's no secret that historically uh, skiing has not been a very diverse activity, but it seems that in the past few years there are some meaningful strides that are being made to embrace this through alliances with a number of organizations. Uh, Ski Utah's uh, Discover Winter program being one. Uh, 
Outdoor Afro, uh, the National Brotherhood of Skiers, uh, many like this. And I know your organization has been very engaged in these efforts to diversify the sport of skiing and snowboarding. We, yeah, we have to. Um, it's beyond a moral imperative. You know, it is a business imperative. And, uh, you know, the, the, the funnel of winter sport participants is getting, is getting narrow. We had a huge boon in the, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and the, the baby boomers have carried this forward. Um, but unfortunately, it's been, it's been plagued with a, you know, a, a wealthy white man's game. And, um, and it's, it's our job to change that. It's our destiny to open, open up the outdoors to a more diverse audience and get more people comfortable in snow, no matter what color you are, your gender, or, you know, your sexual preference or things that don't matter. Um, all that matter is, is that you're getting outside and having fun. And there are, there's some great groups out there. You mentioned Discover Winter, um, Afro Outdoor, um, SOS. Um, there's a lot of great organizations that are doing amazing work to make winter sport accessible. And, you know, Share Winter is another a great um, example of of an organization that is really engaging underprivileged uh, um, youth to get outside and, and play and financially supporting a lot of these initiatives as well, not just their own, but these other groups. So, you know, we have to be looking at broadening the interest uh, to these sports and, you know, diversity is, is, is the best way and most frankly, the easiest way to, uh, to raise the tide and get ships to float higher. And, uh, and so that's what we're focused on. We have a team here that focuses on it. We have a committee of industry leaders that are focused on it. And again, like climate, it's not going away. And um, we you know, have to do all that we can do now for the next generation and set ourselves up for success. What are some of the specific initiatives you have at SIA to help with this? Is this something where you're looking to help with funding or just uh, through engagement? What are some of the mechanisms? Engagement is our number one uh, right now. And uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of groups that have uh, money to fund, but uh, beyond that, you know, a, a lot of it is education and it's getting our industry to wake up to um, hiring talented uh, individuals for certain, for certain roles at companies, getting more people um, available to work at resort, getting more people of color um, and diverse backgrounds to feel comfortable coming to a, a town like Park City, where your server is white, your ski school uh, uh, teacher's white, your you know pilots white. Um, you know that's that's a bigger problem, but we have to we have to really focus on getting people comfortable coming here, spending their money, spending their time. They've got as much money as everyone else out there. And, uh, you know, they shouldn't be limited by color or, or background. And, uh, so a lot of education and, um, really trying to get, um, more conversation and, uh, and get people to think broader than, than narrow. Let's shift gears a little bit here. And as the head of SIA, you are in contact with hundreds or thousands of different uh, companies out there. So you certainly uh, have your finger on the pulse of what's hot and what's coming up. But before we get to what's hot now or going to be in this coming season, let's take a look back at the evolution of gear. Certainly ski and snowboard gear has evolved immensely over the last couple of decades. What have been some of the really pivotal changes over the last 20 years or so that are making a big difference today and making it easier for people to get on the mountain you know i think with the evolution of 
the shape ski. Um, you and I were talking a couple of days ago and I used the term parabolic, which, you know, was a dated term and, and, uh, it's really, uh, a bad hangover for uh, product design, but the shape ski has really made it easier for, uh, beginners and I- intermediate to pick up the, pick up the sport and learn how to turn their skis. Um, so much that snowboards um, have adopted sh- shape as well to make it easier for people to to ride and get comfortable um, when they're on snow. The other one was you know twin tips, and it was no no phenomenon that that really came from inspiration from snowboarding and uh, giving people the ability to go backwards or forwards, um, not only on snowboard but also skis. And that's been, you know, really um, wonderful, wonderful technology integrated into product as well as, you know, the birth of integrated bindings or step-in bindings for snowboard. And, uh, you know, and there's been a lot of people along the way. And, you know, if you had to point your finger at one person, you know, Shane McConkey was a, was a leader and innovator in what um, what he was doing with his skis when he was uh, riding for Volant and, um, you know, the spatula ski and, and so on and so forth. And uh, kind of mocking the industry, but he was on to something. And, uh, and that has kind of carried forward and, uh, you know, still today is very relevant. Yeah, it was an interesting pioneering period, but I like what you had to say about snowboard and ski kind of feeding off each other during that heyday of, let me call it in the 90s and into the the aughts. Yes, as much as they, you know, someone's probably going to call me up after they hear this and say I was completely wrong. But I think, you know, they were feeding off each other and the the designs were very, uh, were very, very simple and easy to execute. And, uh, and there is a strong interest to try new things. And, um, you know, uh, there's been a rift between skiing and snowboarding since the inception. And I think a lot of that has gone, gone to the wayside and everyone realizes, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And, and, um, certainly, you know, I'm a, I can ski, I can ride, I can do both uh, at a, at a very high level. And, uh, so I don't really see a rift there anymore, but, uh, I think back in the day of designing product, there was probably quite a bit of competition. Yeah. And I love pointing it all back to Shane McConkey. He's a legend. He's still, his soul is still there and his vibe is probably stronger than it's ever been. And, um, you know, there's just some classic videos of him just trying different things with, you know, um, skis and, and water skis and, you know, skiing, uh, you know, all over the, all over the world and off peaks and, and, uh, beginner runs, whatever. But, it just took someone to uh, really poke fun at themselves and um, try different things. And, uh, and it gave a lot of um, ski manufacturers um, good ideas at a time where the business was really flat. So as we look ahead, what's the next big idea in ski and snowboard technology? I mean, the one that, that I'm paying a lot of attention to is uh, ski and snowboard product made out of recycled material. And uh, Rosnall has a line called the Essential Line uh, of skis, which are made out of recycled material. And I really think, you know, when we start talk, talking about sustainability of, of manufacturing and product and this industry and the sport, um, that's the direction we have to be going in. And um, I have yet to ski on, on the product. Um, I've heard from Rosnall how great it is. Obviously, they're not going to tell you otherwise. But, uh, you know, I do believe um, the product is good. I've seen it and it looks beautiful. And this is where, you know, we have to be going as an industry if we want to prolong winter and if we want to prolong 
um, the industry for the next generation. Let's talk about the market for this. And you know, I think it's easy to see that people are going to flock out for a new ski and snowboard technology that's going to make it easier, more comfortable, maybe faster, whatever the case might be. You do a lot of data analysis. It's one of the big, big backbone pieces of SIA. Do you see the generations coming up now as being really motivated to look at where did this product come from? Yeah, we do. And um, you know, research and data is a huge part of what we do here. And uh, we supply that back to the industry. We're constantly surveying the industry on different different initiatives uh, to create feedback. But uh, you know, we are seeing consumers who are socially conscious and wanting to see their favorite brands do the right thing, focusing on climate, focus on sustainability, focus on on product that is um, innovative and and quite honestly, using recycled material. How are we going to reduce all of this? You know junk around us and do good with it. And so these, uh, tomorrow's consumer, you know, they're very serious. Um, they have money and they have time and, uh, they're going to search out who's doing the best job and that's going to be their brand. Do you see across the leadership of those manufacturers that you work with and distributors, do you see an increased sense of awareness of how important this is? Yeah, that's a great question. And, um, you know, um, I would say six years ago, not so much, um, today, absolutely. And, uh, these brands are waking up to this new consumer in this, in this new world and, and really pushing the needle on their product development and, uh, and, and really pushing the needle of recycled material to, to test where are the limits on this, uh, on these materials. Um, if you're going to sell a ski to someone and they're going to go ski at 40, 50 miles an hour, you want to make sure that material does its job. So there's a lot of, uh, research happening right now, um, using testing recycled product and, uh, testing their limitations. Well, Nick, we appreciate you sharing some thoughts here today. We're going to close this uh, episode of Last Chair with our Fresh Track segment. Just a few questions to wrap things up. Uh, do you remember back to your first ever pair of skis and what those might have been? Well, they were Nordic skis, and I do believe they were Nordlands. Is that uh, a brand that you might remember? But I, I'm pretty sure that's what my Nordic skis were. Were they Northlands? Northlands. There we go. Northlands. And uh, they were they pan me downs from... Um, you know, a friend of, a, of, of my uncle and, and, uh, and I definitely got the most out of those skis. They were, they were wooden skis. They were with, wooden. Did you have leather thongs as bindings or were you? I did not. They had the, that little three pin, you know, uh, super wide, binding, yeah. super wide, big and, spring. Oh yeah. yeah. And, uh, so that's what we were ripping around on. And, um, and then eventually, you know, I, I think, I think when my, my father realized, oh, you're, this kid's actually going to ski a lot. He bought me a pair of Rosinol skis. You've been in Utah on and off for a period of almost 30 years. Have you developed that favorite go-to run in Utah? I, I certainly have. I'm a little reluctant to share it with everyone. And, uh, but, uh, but it's no secret, you know, I, when you're at Alta on the Supreme lift and, you know, you go, uh, far, far skiers left out there to last chance, those woods out there, you know, you can still get powder a few days after a big storm. But, um, but, you know, I, I, uh, we were just talking about the front side of park city and the Crescent woods. And I remember, um, you know, ripping turns down Willie's, uh, before CB's was there. And, and then certainly, you know, going to deer Valley, um, you know, that was a treat back in the early days and it certainly still is today, but, um, you know, being able to just rip turns down deer Valley is always a, is always a good guess. 
Yeah, make a note, get the pencil and pen out. Crescent Woods, that is a really good one off the front side of Park City. Best ever piece of gear you've ever had. Could be anything. It's just like you like the color, you like the performance. It's got to be, you know, my cell phone because I I know where I'm going on the hill and uh, people can track me down. But um, now, you know, I think um, there's been a lot, I've had a lot of gear as we all have. And uh, certainly um, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of my beacon and um, I wear that inbounds and out of bounds. And, um, and uh, I love the technology and the safety component. You know, I think it, it, the in- integration back into a Lang ski boot after snowboarding for 12 years. And, um, you know, it's like putting your foot into a sports car and that boot just performs unbelievably well. And, um, and I had forgotten from the time I had left Lang Star and all the years in between just the performance that that boot offers. And so I'm a huge fan of the Lang ski boot. I want to go back to your beacon comment. I really love that. And I don't think a lot of skiers or riders really think about that. But what would cause you to wear a beacon inbound? Do you look at conditions or you just do it as a matter of course? I just do it for a matter of course. Um, you know, we've all lost a lot of friends in Avalanche over the years. And um, and certainly, um, you know, there are as many inbound accidents as there are out of bound. Um, and I just think it, it's a safe uh, piece of product to have on you. And no matter what happens, you know, you know that someone has the potential to find you and it's very little effort to throw it on and it just sits under your jacket. And um, I'm just a huge fan of, uh, you know, precautionary uh, measures, uh, making sure that, you know, I'm safe so I can go do it again the next day. And uh, I don't want to leave it to chance. Now, it's it's just a great policy. I, I have to say, I don't do it all the time, but I do it anytime I'm in an environment inbounds where there's a potential of something happening, whether that's a tree well or or a big slide. Uh, let's move on to more fun stuff. Your favorite Utah opera spot? Oh man, that's a, that's gonna be uh, that's gonna be another good one. You know, um, I used to like to go to the bar where Renstall used to be in Park City. Um, I can't remember the name of that bar. It's right at the, uh, at the corner, the pig pen, the pig pen. There we go. I love the pig pen. It's still there. It's still, I, I know it's there and uh, I've been there. I worked there in that when it was Renstall for a couple, couple years. And, uh, and I also rented that for Sundance for Burton snowboards. So I've kind of have a nice relationship with that space, but, um, it really, it really sings to the essence of, uh, you know, the ski bum life and, and, and why we all moved to a resort town. Last one, your favorite Sauvignon Blanc. Oh man, that's a, that's another tough one. Yeah. I love the savvy bees and, um, you know, um, I bought some love block the other day. That was delicious. That goes down pretty easy. And, um, and certainly, you know, the, the New Zealand Savion Blancs are my favorite, uh, nice dry and, and tart. And, uh, but I've been drinking a little bit of the, uh, the California Savion Blancs and enjoying those too. So yeah, I'm just enjoying the wine. Good. Can you get that at the pig pen? No, you cannot. I didn't think so. Nick Sargent, president, CEO of SAA. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing some insights and talking about your life here in Utah. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Nick is a great storyteller. It's been fascinating to watch how he's transformed SIA over the past few years. Climate, sustainability, and diversity are important topics for all of us in the sport. Before we go, let me take you up to Powder Mountain, just an hour north of the Salt Lake City Airport. Pow Mau is truly one of Utah's best-kept secrets. With limited daily ticket sales, skiers and riders never wait in line. And there's so much terrain at Pau that even a day or maybe a week after a storm, you're still likely to find a few powder pockets. 
And while there are plenty of lifts to ride, you can also hitch a cat ride up Lightning Ridge or take a bus shuttle up from Powder Country or even Skin and Ski. This winter, get away from the crowds. Discover why Powder Mountain remains one of the most sought-after ski resorts in the world. The Ski Utah Last Chair podcast is brought to you by High West Distillery. Follow our whiskey adventure on all social media platforms at Drink High West. And remember, sip responsibly. High West Whiskey, 46% alcohol by volume. High West Distillery in Park City, Utah. We have a great season ahead on Last Chair. In upcoming episodes, we'll be talking about the Great Salt Lake and diving into the world of ski lifts with the legendary Peter Landsman of the Lift Blog. And if you missed it, go back and listen to our debut Season 4 episode on the new Snowbird Tram. If you like the podcast, share it with a friend and leave us a review. And make sure to subscribe to get every episode delivered directly to you. Thanks for joining us as we kick off Season 4 of Last Chair close us out, let's welcome back our friends Pixie and the Partygrass Boys. I'm Tom Kelly for Last Chair, presented by High West. Have fun. It is a great day to ski. Oh, I love to ski. I'm living in Utah. I'm living in Utah. I'm living in Utah. Oh, I love to ski. I'm living in Utah. I'm living in Utah.